the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's so good to have you, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I am delighted to have Gretchen Rubin on the podcast. She is such a positive voice, and we talk about all things, uh, including why rebels plant churches, clerking for the U.S. Supreme Court, picking yourself, and how to increase your energy and be happier. We go into a lot of different directions. She's a New York Times bestselling author. We'll tell you more in just a minute. And this episode is brought to you by our friends at Leader and Belay. So you can grab a spot on the pre-sale email list and be the first to get exclusive updates about Matt Tresseter and Chris Heeslip's brand new book, Management is Dead. They are the co-founders at Leader. You can sign up at leader.com slash book. That's L-E-A-D-R.com slash book. And as an exclusive offer to our listeners, Belay is offering its new church leadership toolkit. In it, they've compiled the most essential resources for great church leaders. Just text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y to 55123 and get back to doing what you do best with Belay. Well, Gretchen Rubin is a New York Times bestselling author. She is one of today's most influential and thought-provoking observers of happiness and human nature. She is a highly acclaimed writer known for her ability to distill and convey complex ideas from science and literature to stories from her own life with levity and clarity. She sold millions of copies of her New York Times best-selling books and more than 220 million downloads of her Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. She has an enthusiastic following on her newsletter and social and um, has won awards for her book. And I am thrilled to have her on the podcast. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. We get into some really, really good territory. And if you're new, welcome. And if you haven't yet subscribed, to this podcast, you can do so wherever you're listening right now. Just hit the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode. So I've got a take for you. What if management is dead and people development is the new way forward? My friends, Matt Tresseter and Chris Heeslip, the co-founders at Leader, have boiled down the secret to people development in five simple foundations. They share how to implement these foundations with your organization in their brand new book, which I've read and endorsed, called Management is Dead. So you can join in on the leadership revolution with me by grabbing a spot on the pre-sale email list to be the first to get exclusive book-related updates. You can do it at leader.com slash book. That's L-E-A-D-R dot com slash book. And church leaders have extraordinary demands on their time. You know that with responsibilities as urgent and varied as those of a Fortune 500 CEO, but here's the trick, you have a lot fewer resources. So you can get buried in administrative tasks you don't need to, and you weren't called to do. But when a church leader adopts a hybrid workforce, they reap a windfall of multiplying benefits for themselves and their churches, and that's where our friends at Belay can help. Belay's modern staffing solutions have been helping busy church leaders like you delegate the details for over a decade with U.S.-based virtual assistants, accounting specialists, and social media managers. If you're ready to get started, check out Belay's Church Leadership Toolkit. In this toolkit, you'll have access to their most essential resources for great church leaders. So to claim it, here's what you do. Text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. That's Carrie to 55123. Nobody can do it alone. Get out of the weeds and get back to growing your church with Belay. Just text C-A-R-E-Y to 55123. And now my conversation with Gretchen Rubin. 
Gretchen, welcome to the podcast. It's a thrill to have you. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Yeah, that's fun. So we've had a few lawyers on the podcast. You and I uh, share that in common. Uh, <laughs> law is something we did and then left it behind me very quickly. And you met you. You were telling me you met your husband in law school. I met my wife in law school. So uh, yes. tell me about your law background. Yeah, so I started out in law, and uh, yes, indeed, I met my husband in the law library. Our carols were back to back, so I had excellent <laughs> library carols. attendance. Yeah, oh study carols. Um, that's how we met. Yeah. And it's funny, we both, we, we went to law school together and then um, we left law at the same time. Um, I left when I had an idea for a book and thought, okay, I, at this point, I'd rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. So let me see if I can make a switch and get an agent and a book deal. And he decided to switch into finance. And so he took financial accounting at night and I got a book called How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. And we switched from law, but we, we, but still have um, very good feelings about about that, our legal education. It is interesting, you know, I'm very grateful for that brief time. Mm -hmm. I basically just articled in downtown Toronto, got called to the bar and resigned and went into seminary. But it teaches you so much. So I'd love to know what drew you to law? Like, were, were, were you a kid and you're like, hey, this is what I'm going to do? Or what happened? How'd you get there? I went to law school for all the wrong reasons. I didn't know what else to do with myself. I thought, well, I'm good at research yeah. and writing. And my father is a very, very happy lawyer. So I had the example of somebody in my life. Right. He didn't put any pressure on me, but I just had an example of someone who liked it. And I thought, well, it's a great education. I can always change my mind later. It'll give me a lot of options. And so I just drifted into law school, basically. Um, and it worked out fine. And sometimes when you drift into something, it does work out and you're very happy with it. Um, and I'm very happy that I went to law school. I had an amazing experience uh, from it. But looking back, I wish that I had more mindfully made the decision to go because I definitely uh, did, not, uh, did not do it uh, for any reason other than I didn't, that I didn't know what to do with myself. But it was a bit of a different era, too, because we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have the Internet as we have it today. And I mean, mm -hmm. I just thought, well, law is a good job. It's near the top of the food chain. I'll have enough money. I'll be successful. You know, again, those aren't great reasons. They're just real reasons. And mm -hmm. I got in and so I went and, right. you know, away we go. What, how yeah. did, you know, <laughs> the, there's this yeah, little yeah, <laughs> that is yeah. drifty. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I caution people about it because it's sort of like one, it's the decision we make by not deciding and sort of just sort of the thing that is the next obvious choice or what other people around us are doing or, you know, and, and it, and it just, it's, and it sounds like it's easy. Drifting sounds like the easy choice. Um, but it often means a, a tremendous amount of work. I mean, you and I know going to law school, it's hard. Um, yeah. And so I drifted into it, but it wasn't like it was a picnic uh, to go to law school for sure. I always think it kicked my butt. And, you know, I don't know. I, I'd love your reaction yeah. to this because people would ask me after I started ministry, do you ever use your law? And mm -hmm. for the first few years, my answer was no, because I'm not negotiating contracts. I'm not in court. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing any of that. But I changed my answer a few years into it because I realized for me, law school totally reprogrammed the way I think. Like you cannot, oh, yes. once you're in law school, you cannot oh, drift. Yeah. Like you fail uh -huh. out or you're in yeah. and it reprogrammed my mind. So did it do that yeah. to you? And if so, how? 
Absolutely. I think that's really true. In fact, somebody was saying to me, they don't think entrepreneurs should go to law school because it makes you very risk averse. It makes you very, <laughs> very, uh, you know, it really trains you to think like, well, what are the downsides? And I think for me, especially as a writer, it served me well because it, I think it makes my my reasoning and my argument more solid, even in ways that like I think a reader wouldn't be aware of because I'm always thinking, well, I say this, but you could argue that. And then you would say this, and I would say that, and you would say that, but I would say, oh, but what about this? And even though none of that, puts, I don't put that on the page because it's too boring, um, I think that it means that it's more rigorous because I, I, I sometimes read things or hear people uh, assert things and I'm just like, yeah, says you. I mean, you're just you're not you're not thinking about how I might respond to you. Um, you're not taking my arguments into account um, as you're presenting your argument to me. So I, I do think that I do think that legal, but it's very legal writing is so boring. I do remember thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot. I I just cannot. I will never write like this. And, and, and with oh. all my writing, I like, I, I'm like, how can I cut it? How can I cut it? How can I make it more clear? How can I make it just like come like, I just, because, because you fight your way through legal writing to try to understand what the heck anybody's talking about. It's a good discipline to, to be able to do it, but you definitely don't want to impose it on others, <laughs> innocent bystanders. I think I took a course on like plain English for lawyers or something. Yes. And it was still right. terrible. It was bad. Yeah. Like yeah. It, the the mumbo jumbo and all that stuff is great. Did you gravitate toward the courtroom side of law or more the solicitor's work? Contracts, negotiation, revisions? Well, I actually, I neither. I clerked for two years. So I clerked in the United uh -huh. States on the Second Circuit, which is a court of appeals. And then on the United States Supreme Court for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So I was a clerk. Meaning, I was working in a courtroom, but um, for the the on the judiciary side, and then I worked briefly at the Federal Communications Commission. I was uh, like a, an advisor um, to the person there, so I was doing kind of regulatory work. And I think for, I don't even know if you uh. had to be a lawyer for that, though. Basically, everybody was. So I was sort of in I was in a completely different area of it when I was in law, and, that, and that's when I left. No, it's really interesting because my wife gravitated more toward the contract type work, solicitor negotiation, and she tends to always see the other argument. And I, for my brief year in law, was was in a courtroom, whereas I tend to barrel ahead with my argument thinking it's invincible. Mm. So I don't mm -hmm. know, that, that might be a, a trail not worth pursuing. But want to talk about your work for the U.S. Supreme Court because you clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Now, she mm -hmm. was the first female Supreme Court justice appointed by yes. Reagan. Was she not in 81, mm -hmm. I think? Yes. And obviously a pivotal experience, so much so that you mentioned when you were purging your closet, you didn't want to get rid of a T-shirt <laughs> that you got yeah. while working with her. Uh, what yeah. were some of the key lessons, insights, or memories of that experience on the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, oh, so many. I mean, one thing uh -huh. is whether or not you agree with the Supreme Court, um, it is people working at the highest level um, and with the greatest attention to detail and with the most rigorous uh, attempt under their own lights um, to get it right. 
Um, and you may disagree with them, but that is, you know, in my experience, there was this very sincere desire to do like the, the most excellent work. And it's very exciting to be part of something where people really are doing their best work and every single person involved with it is just absolutely committed to that. Um, so that was really exciting just in terms of standards, you know, it's just like, exciting to be feeling like you're even the, the, a tiny cog in the wheel of something like that. And then Justice O'Connor herself is just this sort of deeply kind of insightful, but also practical person. Um, and I remember when I started working on the whole happiness um, uh, project and, and, and researching happiness, some people, sometimes people would say to me, like, was she disappointed with you that you left law? And I thought, no, she thinks everybody should do whatever they, they think is right. Um, but I said to her, well, Justice, what do you think is the secret to happiness? And, and instantly, so she obviously had her answer already because she, she didn't think about it. She said, work worth doing. Mm. And the more that I've thought about it, the more profound and true I think that is. Because she didn't say that you, it's paid work. Um, but, but, but I think having work worth doing in your life, um, whatever you conceive that work to be, is an essential part of happiness. And um, so I thought it was very typical of her that it would be three words long. <laughs> she she, she was, she uh, got right to the point always. And the, one of the things also that surprised me um, is that in, in the United States, you, you call the person justice. Like you address mm. them. You're like, hey, justice, what do you think the secret to happiness is? <laughs> and when I first got to the court, I just thought this was so funny. I wanted to laugh all the time because you're literally calling the person justice like they are the embodiment of justice and i thought well that's good they should they should feel the responsibility of their position and so they're being called it's like calling someone doctor you are my doctor and that is an important that's a that's a that's a very important um responsibility to have and so your your title reminds you of that so is that, that reserved for the u.s supreme court the title justice or is that at a certain appellate level that it becomes justice well, in, in different state courts, it's different. They use different different language. So, um, uh, so probably there are other people called justice as well. But these justices are the justices, um, you know, in capital J. Well, the Supreme Court's always in the news. What are mm -hmm. a few things about the court that really surprised you when you got to see it from the inside? You know, the court has changed so much um, that I don't know that what I would observe about the court would necessarily be true today. Um, one of the things that I observed was that the court was very collegial and that even though justices might very much disagree with each other, um, you know, uh, in terms of their opinions, they were very collegial in the way that they worked together. Um, I, it was uh, the warmth that all the justices showed towards their clerks. I mean, you know, these we clerks only last a year. Um, it's a, it's a, it's something where you come and go, and just the the degree to which the justices really took an interest in their clerks and connected with their clerks, and even at clerks for other justices. It's very remarkable. And in fact, it's something that I've thought, it, it's interesting that other professions don't really have this because like being connected to a judge or justice is something that goes on for your whole life. It's something that like you'll say to somebody like, oh, this person like clerked three years ahead of me and there'll be reunions. And it's like, it's a really ongoing mentor relationship and kind of a, you're kind of part of a group. Um, and I thought well, this is something that in a lot of uh, a lot of roles would really value would this would really be a great mm. system to kind of um, uh, adopt. And so I'm sort of surprised it isn't more widespread because it's something that helps both the, the juniors and the seniors. 
Well, and from a leadership development standpoint, I mean, you yes. are in your 20s, right? Yeah. I've talked to, I think Dan Pink, Daniel Pink, mm. oh, he yeah, was a, he was writing speeches for the vice president of the United States at like 24, 25. And when you think about leadership development, what amazes me about that highest court in the land and they're like, yeah, we'll take this recent graduate and you are going to equip me. Like you would think they'd look for someone in their 40s, but they don't. They look for young talent. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And it is a great way to develop um, to develop people and, and, and to help them with kind of the loose ties and strong ties that they need to succeed as well. So, and it, you know, it keeps, it keeps the justices um, connected to, um, you know, the, the world and, and uh, yeah, to, to the kind of upcoming leaders um, in law. So it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting system. For the young leaders listening who might be interested, I mean, getting to clerk for the United States Supreme Court is almost impossible. Like you're the top 1% of the top 1%. But yeah, statistically, looking, it's, it's very rare. <laughs> it's very yeah, rare. Just, just on the numbers. Yeah. But um, if you think about that kind of incubator experience, that kind of just, you know, leadership development, you do it for a year. Think about Gretchen heading in and you then moving out. What were, what was some of the most significant growth or some of the deepest growth points you would have experienced in that 12 month crucible? Well, part of it was just kind of the arcana of how the court works, which is extremely specific and something that, you know, uh, we all had to get very trained up on. So part of it was just understanding a a system, which is always interesting to kind of understand a a new system and why it is the way that it is. Um, You know, it's just a huge learning curve because because the, 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 the problem with the Supreme Court is that if anything's easy, it's not. It doesn't come to the Supreme Court. Um, only hard cases come to the Supreme Court, um, or create right. cases where there, you know, there's sort of bitter disagreement across the country. And so, um, so you, it, it was. Uh, you had to get very, very up to speed in a lot of, um, you know, very complex matters very quickly. So that it, that was a good education just in how to how to do that. Um, and it's funny, I've noticed like some people love a steep learning curve. Um, they like to be in an environment where they're like learning over and over. And then some people like to have deeper and deeper mastery. And I think for a young leader, it's very helpful to think, which kind of person are you? What do you gravitate to? Because you might um, think about whether, uh, are you going to feel stale um, if you're going deeper and deeper? Or do you find that very satisfying? Or w- and would you love to have uh, learn over and over and over and have to get up to speed very quickly? Or would you find that like very unsettling and you would feel like you never had your feet underneath you? I, I, th- there's pros and cons to both kinds of mastery, um, but I think they definitely appeal to different sorts of people. And this was definitely the, you know, get up to speed over and over again. And I think, you know, some people love that and some people don't, they, they prefer to be like true experts. What, what kind of um, like work ethic hours? Is it sort of like being a medical resident where you're just on the clock, you're getting four hours sleep, uh, that kind of thing? What did it do in terms of just the, um, the pace and your ability to uh, adapt to, I assume it was a fast paced environment? Yeah, it was very fast paced and very hard deadlines. But um, it's funny, like when I, I asked the very same question when I was like, you know, they were like, I came in for my 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 introductory meeting and the person said, well, it really depends on how fast you type um, because there's just <laughs> so much typing, so much writing. And I was like, well, actually, 
I was a temp secretary as like my college, you know, summer job one year. So I'm a master typist. I type very, very fast. And so that really stood me in good stead because it's just like, you know what it's like. It's a lot of words and a lot of words having mm -hmm. to be, you know, just typed out. Um, so it was manageable. I mean, certain times like you would work extremely long and hard hours, um, uh, especially when there were capital cases that came up. But um, in general, it was it was uh, it was you know, it was hard, but not, it wasn't like round the clock. What, what took you out of law? Well, it's funny. I have this habit in my life. I, I'm very prone to epiphany, which is one of my favorite things about myself. And I was, uh, I was wandering around the Capitol, um, you know, area in my lunch hour. And I just asked myself a rhetorical question, which I will often do. I was like, well, what am I interested in that everybody else in the world is interested in? Like, what's the most interesting thing? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. It was like power, money, fame, sex. And I instantly was like completely captivated by what seemed to me like one big idea. And this happens to me often. I'll get really pulled into studying some subject and this happened to me, um, and it had happened before, so I was familiar, but this I just got deeper and deeper, and I was doing more and more research and taking pages and pages and pages of notes. And finally, it occurred to me, you know, this is the kind of thing a person would do if they were going to write a book. And then I thought, well, maybe I could be the person to write that book. And I, 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 my clerkship ended, I went and took another job, um, but all the while I was working on this in the background. And then finally, at a certain point, I was like, I need to give this a shot. I, I need to give it a try. I have this idea for a book. I've done all this work toward writing a book. Um, why don't I, why don't I see if I can do it? And so that's, um, that's how I ended up. So it wasn't so much that I was leaving law. It was more like I felt a very intense pull toward writing and not just writing in general, but actually writing a book that I was sort of halfway done with by that point. Um, I had done so much of the work for it. So I think that made my transition much easier because my path was very clear. I mean, I could succeed or fail, but I knew what it was. Whereas I think a lot of times when people want to make a change, they know what they don't want, but they don't know what they do want. And that's a harder thing to figure out. But for me, it was very obvious what it was that I wanted to be doing, which was to write that book, which was indeed was my first book, which was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide. It's like a dark, satirical, um, kind of tongue-in-cheek user's guide. So it sounds like you did what Seth Godin calls picking yourself, choosing yourself, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, don't, don't wait to get picked. Pick yeah. yourself. That's a yes. really big move. Tell us about mm -hmm. that. And, and even bigger because, I mean, self-publishing wasn't really an option 20 years ago like it is today. Like you were, you were, you chose yourself in an era mm -hmm. where the, the cost to entry, I mean, starting a podcast now, we both have podcasts, you know, congratulations yeah. on all your success in podcasting, but for a hundred dollars and a computer, hundred dollars being a microphone and a computer, yeah. you know, you're yeah. podcasting next week if you want to be. Yeah. It wasn't the case back then. Right. So talk about picking yeah. yourself. That's interesting because I never really thought of it that way, but you're exactly right. I mean, for me, really, it was the pull towards this idea. I just wanted to write this book. The only way that I can understand what I think is to write about it. And I had never, I, and I had always loved, loved, loved to read, but I had never seen a place for myself in writing because at that time I thought people were either novelists, playwrights, poets, or they were journalists, or they were academic writers. And I was like, well, I don't want to do any of those things. 
Um, but then when I had this idea for this book, I was like, oh, I see, I see how this could be a book. And this could be the kind of book that I would write. Um, and, and it was really so much that I just wanted to do it. Um, and it was sort of like I was going to do it. I mean, I remember somebody asked me, like, oh, what, what did you get for your advance for your first book? And I said, look, I would have done it for free. If they're like, look, we're not going to pay you a dime. I would have been like 100%. I'll sign up because I would do it for free. I was going to I was doing it for free because I just couldn't help right. myself. And and I think there are people who feel this kind of compulsion um to do something. And and sometimes the compulsion is is freeing and exciting because it gives you such a clear sense of purpose and it makes it clear what you shouldn't be doing because you're like, well this is what I need to be doing. Of course it can be a little bit scary because sometimes people feel a compulsion to do something that they really don't want to in, in some other element of their life, they really would rather not to or causes problems for them. And yet you sort of feel like you just feel this very, very strong, overwhelming desire to follow a path. And that's what happened to me. It was like, it was like I was in the Millennium Falcon and the Death Star had me in its tractor beam. And it's like, you better just take your hands off the wheel because this is happening. And I was like, okay, I'll just play this out. Um, so... That's how it felt to me more than just me choosing myself. It felt like I was deceased by an, an idea that I had to carry through to its end. Yeah, fair enough. So I don't always ask this of every guest, but as I'm reading your books, I found myself wondering, what is Gretchen's Enneagram type? And I have a theory, which could be totally yes. wrong. First of all, do you know what it is? Or if you don't, we can just move on to the next question. I think I'm a three. You think you're a three, like a performer? Well, I can't. I'm not okay. sure that I can remember it clearly enough. I know you often talk about that with your with your I guests, do. so I Probably should have looked much. it up. Is uh, three the leader? And one is uh, idealist. Three is the leader. So one is perfectionist. Three is uh, what many people call a performer. In other words, I have uh, to appear to be successful. Mm. I wondered about a five because of yep. your like your investigator, you're so thoughtful, methodical, oh, interior maybe. life. I'm also married to a five, so I just oh. saw a lot of similarities. Okay. Yeah. No, I believe it because I remember that it was an odd number, but I can't remember exactly. <laughs> it's an odd number. I haven't Seven looked at like it in a fun. while. Yeah. Yeah. And then eight right. is is like the overbearing challenger. That's me. And when we're unhealthy, we're terrible. When we're healthy, we're fine. But mm -hmm. uh, okay, well, it was it was just interesting because your your level of analysis, and again, that's your legal background, but also mm. your thought process. I thought, oh, this is this runs deep. Like you really, really think about things. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, that is that is that's what I like to do the best. Absolutely. Um, so, and and before we get into the happiness project and uh, the four tendencies and the five senses and podcasting and all that, you also wrote some biographies of Winston Churchill and JFK, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about why those two leaders and mm -hmm. then would love to know any insights you've gained from a couple of incredible 20th century leaders. Oh, yes. Well, you know, it's interesting because when people look at all my books, they sort of say like, wow, you've really jumped around a lot. But actually, to <laughs> me, they seem completely connected because they're all about human nature. That's really ah. what I'm interested in. And so Power, Money, Fame, Sex is about human nature. The Happiness Project is about human nature. Life in Five Senses is about human nature. But that really the reasons that I was that I was drawn to Churchill and JFK is they're such exaggerated figures of human nature. And they're very, mm. you can, we can study them more easily because they are, they are so huge. And also they're so studied. We have such 
we we have so many insights into them from the outside and the inside because there was so much written about them and they were so interviewed. Of course, Churchill himself just wrote so voluminously. Um, and what I learned from them, I mean, especially Winston Churchill, I mean, what jo a joy it was to write both of those books. So fascinating. And the way my those two uh, biographies are written is they're very short. They're kind of unconventional. And the idea is it's really... Uh, I'm trying to convey, because they've both been so written about, the essence. Like, if you really, you're like, I'm going to read one book. I wanted to be like the starter book for like Winston mm. Churchill. I thought, if you're not ready for the seven-volume this or the eight-volume that or the 900-page one-volume, read my book and that will get you going. You'll just think, no one's more inter interesting than Churchill. I have to read more and you'll be very excited to read more. What I found when I wrote it is the people who like these biographies the best are the people who already know a huge amount about these characters because I have this very <laughs> unconventional approach where I show kind of every way you could consider them. I don't sort of commit to one view like Churchill is bad or Churchill is good or whatever, but I try to show all the different ways a biographer could could convey kind of his character and his, his path. Um, and so it's people who really already know who are the most interested in that approach. So I found that I, I thought I was going to be for the newbies, but in fact, it was for the, the real aficionados were the ones who were drawn to those biographies. I mean, Winston Churchill, I just, I think about him all the time. I mean, probably a day doesn't go by. I mean, he was such a wonderful writer, you know, just like things that he says about just history and, and painting and writing and I, I just uh it is hilarious lines you know it was so funny could tell such a beautiful story I mean I feel um I feel so fortunate that I that I was I wrote that book both of those books JFK too one of the the characteristics of Churchill which has fascinated me he's got one of my all-time favorite quotes that success mm. is moving from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. just so understated so British and so true. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think that's actually from him. It's not falsely attributed. But I mean, most of his life from what I've read was not a lot of success right up to 1940. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of failure, tough, got rejected a lot, kind of mm -hmm. a Lincoln-esque type of mm -hmm. life prior to Lincoln becoming president mm -hmm. of the United States. What do you think allowed him to keep going? Because there's a lot of discouraged leaders, especially over the last few years, listening mm -hmm. to this. And they're like, I'm just going to pack it in. And mm -hmm. Churchill didn't do that. He didn't. And he was exactly the person for the occasion in mm -hmm. 1940. I mean, I agree with the biographers who say, I, I think Europe could have had, and the world could have had a very different future had Churchill mm -hmm. not been prime minister at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Hitler himself said of Churchill, if this war had not come, who then would speak of Churchill? Um, so he was definitely like, I'm the one who made Churchill. It's like, oh, well, maybe that's true. Well, not the way you, you figured. Oh, boy. Not the way you planned. Um, no, I mean, one thing about one thing about Churchill is he had a, you know, he had a, a very big ego. He really thought he was right. Mm. Um, and he was very deeply committed to his vision. Um, which is one of the things that you can fault him for. Um, but, you know, and, and certainly some have done. But yes, he just had this unwavering vision um, of Britain, its role in the world, the course of history, the right and wrong, um, and, how to, and how to proceed. And, uh, and, I, and I think that that really sustained him. I mean, he really had a remarkable career. He had every, uh, all the most important offices except Chancellor of the Exchequer 
he held every office at some time or another. He was involved in every kind of major historical event in, you know, some capacity of responsibility, like in his, you know, for everything that happened in his lifetime. Um, I, I, when I was writing it, I was like, who did Churchill not know? I was like, he knew Coco Chanel. He knew, I mean, it was just like <laughs> all these random people, like, you know, just like there, there's a picture of them with Winston Churchill. Um, so he was sort of in the center of everything. And yeah, and he, and he just refused, he refused to give up, um, as he said, you know, never give up. So, um, I think, I think it was his, 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 his belief in himself, <laughs> um, and his vision, um, and yeah, it is, it is really stirring, um, to go back to, uh, those early days in World War II and think about what, um, what Churchill did and what he said and, and, um, yeah, how, how events unfolded. So over the last decade, you become widely known, um, through your podcast and also through, um, your book, The Happiness Project for your work on happiness. So mm -hmm. for people who maybe haven't heard the podcast or read the book, can you talk about uh, what the work's about and how you actually got interested in that? Mm -hmm. Well, I got interested in, in a very ordinary moment of my life. I was just finishing up my my, my biography of JFK. And, and you know how it is um, mm. when you're finishing a book and it's kind of like, it's not out in the world, but you've basically done your part. And so it's a little bit of a downtime. So I had a, a bit more bandwidth and I was in a crowded city bus and I just, again, I always ask myself these rhetorical questions, which is very helpful for me career, professionally. And then I said to myself, like, what do I want from life anyway? <laughs> and I thought, well, <laughs> I want to be happy. And then I thought, well, yeah, but I never think about, am I happy? Could I be happier? What is happiness anyway? And I thought, you know, I should have a happiness project. And that was the word, that, that was the phrase that came to my mind. And I thought, yeah, I should. And all of a sudden I was seized again with this desire to do a huge amount of research. I went running to the library, got a giant stack of books and started researching happiness. What is happiness? How can you make yourself happier? What's the science? What's the philosophy? What, you know, what's pop culture? And at first I was just doing it for myself. I wanted to make myself happier. And so I was just very drawn to the subject, but I did my thing where I started reading and reading and taking notes and before long, I thought, wow, like, this is just drawing me in. Maybe this should be my next big writing project. And so that's when I decided to write about happiness. But it started just thinking about it for my own life. And, and that was how it occurred to me. So that's what I called it, The Happiness Project. So that's how I got um, got launched into it. So what The Happiness Project is, is I decided, okay, if I, if I wanted to see if I could make myself happier, what would I do? And I thought, well, a year is long enough to make real change, but it's not so long that I can't see the end of it. And so I, I divided the year into 12 categories and thought, okay, well, I'll tackle a different thing, like energy in January, you know, family, um, you, you know, different different subjects that I would do. And I, would, I set myself three or four resolutions to try to work on that to see if I could uh, make myself happier. Like, what, what would I discover? And so, um, so that's how I got into that. And then with the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast, which came later, I do that with my sister. And again, I have a very kind of Ben Franklin approach where I'm really like, mm. okay, this, I want to know the practical side of it. Um, right. I never talk about things like dopamine because I'm like, I can't control my dopamine, but I can control what time I go to bed. Um, I can't control, you know, what's going on in my brain, but I can, you know, what can I, what's within my conscious uh, what what can I consciously shape? Um, that's what I really think about in my in my work is is that aspect of it. And so in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast, that's what we talk about. It's like 
we give a try this at home suggestion. So like what's something people could try at home or what's a hack, like a little thing that little shortcut people have found, things like that. So it's, so we talk about the research and the, and the history of ideas and things, but always with an idea. I, that's what I'm very interested in um, with life in five senses. Again, it's like, well, what can, how can I put this to action in my own life? And I always use myself as the guinea pig. I'm always, you know, I'm a street scientist. I experiment on myself and I'm always speaking through the lens of my own experience. So so some people find that interesting and useful and some people do not. Um, so, and they, I hear from them from time to time and like, fair enough, you, you may not find me to be uh, an interesting stand in for yourself. Um, you know, not everybody does. <laughs> so, you know, it was interesting in the happiness project, the book, um, mm -hmm. you talk about having, and it, and it was something I think a lot of people can identify. Like there was nothing wrong with your life, right? No. You're happily no. married. Mm -hmm. You have two daughters. Yeah. You have enough money. You can keep a roof over your head. You had a reasonable mm -hmm. career, lots of experiences. There, there were many elements of even privilege, you could say, in yeah. your life. And yet there yeah. was, was it a malaise? Like, what would you, what would you say kind of undergirded that? Because when I read that, I'm like, oh, you're reading so many people's mail right now. And I've been in right. that place in my life. Not there right, right. now, but like, where it was like, yeah, is this as good as it gets? Like, really? Right. Um, right. So talk about that, that opening state that triggered the project. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I was pretty happy. I mean, all around the world, when you say to people, are you pretty happy? Most people say they're either very happy or pretty happy. So I was not coming from a place of like, uh, deep darkness or, you know, um, you know, despair. I was pretty happy, but I, I did have that feeling of malaise and I did have this feeling first of all, that, that was there more that I could do to be happier? Was there more within reach that just by kind of inattention or kind of inertia, I wasn't taking advantage of. And also I felt like I wasn't appreciating my life enough. Like I did have all the elements of a happy life, but it's so easy to th take things for granted. You know, often it's only when we're faced with loss that we appreciate what we have. And I thought, you know, I'm just not appreciating just my ordinary day the way that I should. And I, and to me, this is a very great challenge. And it's something that I write about over and over again, because I'm like, I don't want to take it for granted. The season of life, where I am, like the beauty of the sky, living in New York City, whatever it is, I, I just, I want to always be awake to how much I appreciate it and feel and, and love it. And so that was also a big element of the Happiness Project is I was like, I, I, and I wanted to do a better job. You know, I wanted to be a better a better mother, a better wife, a better friend, a better daughter, a better sister, a better member of the community, a better citizen. Um, you know, I wanted to uh, expect more. Well, I, I finally figured out, you know, I want to accept myself and expect more from myself. And uh, that was part of the happiness project. How can I accept myself? How can I be Gretchen? Um, how can I live up to that? But then also, how can I expect more from myself and how and what should I do to expect more from myself? And so, so that was all um, in the background of going into the happiness project. I want to drill down on what you spent January doing in the happiness project, which is focusing mm. on your energy, because mm -hmm. that's been a bit of a pursuit of mine over the last 15 years. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I've written on not just time management and priority management, but energy management, because mm -hmm. I burned out in 2006 and in the last yeah. 17 years have spent a lot of time thinking about, well, first of all, how do I never go back there? Secondly, mm -hmm. um, yeah. managing my energy. And I'm discovering that it is this 
almost bottomless pit of fascinating reserves. Like you can actually do things to increase your energy that Mm -hmm. make every day better, that allow me, you know, I was at dinner last night with a couple and they were like, how do you get so many podcast episodes done? How do you get all your work done? And it's a lot of it is energy management. So when Mm -hmm. you were doing the happiness project, what was some of the things, first of all, why energy? And then what did you do to try to boost it? Mm-hmm. No, I, I am a hundred percent with you. Energy is so important to think about and focus on because, and that's why I made it the first thing uh, in the mm. happiness project is that if you have energy, everything else is easier. Everything else yes. that you know would make you happier. It's easier uh-huh. because a lot of times you're like, oh, I should have a Super Bowl party, but I can't face like, oh, oh all the errands and the d- emails and the, this like, and cleaning up the house. Like I can't deal with it. Or like, Sure, I should start a book group. That would be so fun. Or I should plan what you know, a family outing, but you're just so exhausted that you can't face it, mm-hmm. even though you know it would make you happier. Um, and so so I thought, well, if I start with energy, all the things that I will do in the ele- the next eleven months will be easier for me because I'll just have more energy to to ask more of myself. and And I think that's right. and And I think that you're I, I completely agree that thinking about your energy, it's so important. So in, in the happiness project, and, and I, this is something that I've been very, very focused on ever since for exactly the reasons yeah. that you say. It's just, it's just, it's something that you really have to think about all the time, uh, I find. Um, so one was Same. getting enough sleep. I, I, I think I'm a huge sleep zealot, you know, getting enough sleep. One thing that I found since I wrote the happiness project, um, just because I'm so engaged with listeners and readers, is there's a real difference between morning people and night people. And like 30% of the world is truly night people. 40% is morning people. And then the rest is somewhere in between. It's largely genetically determined and also a function of age. And often I would talk to people and they're like, well, I've decided my New Year's resolution is I'm going to get up and go for a two mile run every, every day before breakfast. And I'm like, have you met yourself? Cause no, you won't, you're a night person. <laughs> And, and the fact is, night people are constantly told they should try to be morning people. Whereas, in fact, I think, it's, like, back to your idea of energy management, it's much better off to say, hey, let's, and I actually have a PDF on my website about helping you track your energy if you're not sure. Because I think a lot of times people who are discouraged with their inability to do something, it's because they're trying to do it in a day where it's not right for them. Because if you're a night person, you're at your most productive and energetic later in the day. So for you, 4 p.m., all these people say, get up and do it first thing. I mean, that works for morning people. But for night people, they might be better off at 4. I have a friend who's a writer. She does her best work between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. I have a a friend who exercises at midnight. Um, To me, this sounds bonkers. Um, (laughs) But then if I'm really busy, I'll get up at 4.30 or 5 and work. And they think, hey, that's bedtime. You know, so... But 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 I think when you track your energy and you see this um, like in teams where you've got like a very morning person boss who's trying to like get the team on board by having something early when we're fresh and before the day is interrupted. But if you've got if that team is mostly night people, you're not going to be getting their best work. Or I have a fr- my sister who's a TV writer. She worked for a night person who was constantly trying to push important work into later hours which she, mm-hmm. which she found very hard to manage. So again, it's it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong and or like let's point to the research and say who's right. It's that people are different and so the question is how do we manage those di- how do we manage ourselves and then if we're working with other people, how do we manage those differences to try to create a situation where everybody can thrive rather than being like I'm right you're wrong or you're right I'm wrong. 
Um, so that was one thing that was, uh, I've, I really have come to believe uh, since working on the Happiness Project, embracing myself, my morning person self, and understanding that it's, it's not the universal um, approach. Um, and another thing is exercise. You know, a lot of people think uh, if you exercise, you're going to tire yourself out. But in fact, uh, exercise tends to boost energy instead of draining energy, unless you're really, you know, at the extremes of exercise. Yeah. Yeah. So feeling tired and sluggish is a reason to exercise, uh, not a reason to skip exercising. And and like even research has shown like even 20 minutes will do wonders for you. You do not have to be training for the marathon. I mean, another thing, oh, you know, this is fascinating, is the, the, the new exciting research on daylight and the circadian rhythm. Mm. They're learning new things every day about getting that sunlight into your eyes, especially early morning sunlight. It helps you sleep better. It helps regulate all kinds of like mysterious, subtle, um, you know, uh, uh, processes in the body. And so again, getting morning light is important. So if you can like go outside and go for a walk in the early morning with your dog, that's like, that's like happiness booster extreme. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think a lot about the body, you know, the body, the physical experience always colors the emotional experience. So, you know, managing energy through the body, I think is very important. Yeah, you know, and I totally resonate with what you're saying. It sounds like we're both morning people and yeah. I am, and I think you can become a morning person. But when I speak about this, you know, I do a quick poll of the audience and it feels like leaders are overrepresented by morning people. And then there's always night owls in the crowd. But according to research that Dan Pink, our mutual friend, has collated. Yep. I think the book is called When. Most people are yeah. midday. Your chronotype, like sometime yeah. between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., you hit your hit your peak energy. Mine is 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. Me, um, yeah, me too. I'm with you. You too. and I, we can, we can be banging it out at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I think underneath that, whether you're a night owl, whether you're midday, whether you're a morning person, the thing that I think was hardest for me as a leader, and I got this wrong, and that's why I was kind of curious about your clerking experience, is mm -hmm. I was just chronically exhausted. Like mm -hmm. in the first 10 years of leadership, I just didn't prioritize sleep. I mm -hmm. took on too many challenges. I didn't have good boundaries. And I was just chronically exhausted. So I've literally spent 17 years getting getting and staying unexhausted, mm -hmm. like experimenting right. all the time. I've got this aura ring that tracks my yes. HRV and yeah. the whole deal. Like I've gotten super nerdy about it. So did you have that prior to the happiness project where you were kind of going through the day half awake or three quarters awake? Or like, what did you learn about that? Was there an underlying exhaustion for you or as you've interacted with readers? Because everywhere I go these days, it seems that's what people are dealing with. Well, this kind of backs up on the four tendencies framework that you alluded okay, to because because my tendency is a tendency that tends to manage that kind of thing pretty easily. So I didn't have I didn't have that as much. Like I was I wanted more energy, but I wasn't coming from um, a place of deep exhaustion um, because I think my that and that's part of this four tendencies framework. So can we jump in? Yeah, we can we'll segue. Let's go to the four tendencies. Cut. Yeah. Okay. And I think this will have, this might really resonate with a lot of your listenership because if you're thinking about like yourself and understanding yourself better, and then also if you're trying to reach people or understand like, why am I not connecting with them? Why, why, why are things not landing? The four tendencies framework can be really helpful. So I'm going to explain this very briefly, but if you want to take a quiz, you can go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com and it will tell you if you are an upholder 
a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. Um, but well, let's talk about those four. Let's just lay them yeah. out one more time before yeah. we dive in. So a yes. questioner. Right. So, right. So what this is looking at is a very narrow aspect of your nature. Um, it's very significant, but it's very narrow and it's how you respond to expectations. Um, so we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations, like a work deadline and inner expectations, like my own desire to get back into meditation. So depending on whether you meet or resist outer and inner expectations, that makes you an, an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. So, um, and and once we say these, you'll see them everywhere. Game of Thrones characters, Parks and Rec, they're all over the place. Okay. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the nearest resolution without much fuss. They want, to, they want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important or more important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. They want to know why. They're often told you ask too many questions. Uh, they tend to love research. They tend to love uh, reasons. Um, and uh, they love to customize often. And so these are people that um, uh, make everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they'll do it, no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they'll push back. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So when people say things like, why can I keep my promises at work, but I can't keep my promises to myself? The, that's a sign of being an obliger. Obligers are the rock of the world. They are the ones who come through the most often for others, but they have trouble meeting their expectations for themselves. The answer for them spoiler alert, is to create outer accountability even for an inner expectation. You want to read more? Join a book group. You want to exercise more? Take a class with a trainer. Exercise with a friend who's annoyed if you don't show up. Raise money for a charity. Think of your duty to be a role model. That's getting outer accountability. So their motto is, you can count on me and I'm counting on you to count on me. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. And typically, they don't tell themselves what to do. Like, they don't sign up for a 10 a.m. woodworking class on Saturdays because they think, well— I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that like someone's expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. So their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. And so the biggest <laughs> tendency for both men and women is obliger. And the smallest tendency is rebel. And, oh. um, and then questioners is second largest. Um, so if you're dealing with a big group of people, you can say, most people are going to be obligers and questioners and then rebels and upholders. I'm an upholder. Those are kind of the extreme fringe types and they're the small, they're smaller. So you're naturally very self-disciplined and naturally. Very, yes. And, 
I'm, I'm naturally ahead. very self-disciplined. I've been that way since I was three years old. It's just, it's how I, I really think the tendencies are hardwired. And so, yeah, that's the kind of thing that comes pretty easily to me. And that's pretty funny because a lot of people like who, who do the kind of work that I do, I'm like, yeah, anything works for you because for upholders like us, anything works. The problem is what if you're not an upholder? Then what do those people do? Because what works for upholders often doesn't work for the other three tendencies. Oh, that's really interesting. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you it's it's like what you wrote about when you decided to give up. I think it was sugar, right? You're yes. just like, yeah, I just did it. Yeah. And it wasn't that hard. I just did it. And I've been doing it for no. 10 years. Boom. Yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah. For me, I would be like, I think my mother would say I'm a rebel. I think that's fair. Mom, if you're listening, <gasps> interesting. you can let me know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Like, she always said to me, you will do whatever you put your mind to and nothing else. Because it doesn't there matter what we say. It doesn't matter what other people say. You're just going to do your little thing. And there, there is some truth to that. That or a questioner. It's like, explain it to me. Why would this work? I have to say, anecdotally, many people have told me, oh, church founders are often rebels. Really? Really? So yes, church planters yes, and, are rebels. Yeah, church planters. Yeah, because, um, and I was like, why? That's very interesting. And because one thing that you see with rebels is what you, what surprised me is that often rebels are drawn to the military, the clergy, um, police, and sometimes corporations in the with military? lots of rules. Yes. Yes. Because you would think and that's upholders. It would be like, boom, boom, boom. You would right? think. Like, you, and I was so curious about that. And what the rebels have said to me is like, for some rebels, they need the they need an architecture to push off of. They need something to resist to kind of give them the energy. And I think, and the military has figured out how to handle these people and like get the best from them. It's interesting. But I think with church planting, somebody said to me, somebody who like was telling me about their experience was like, the thing about yeah. rebels, they don't like the answer to anybody. <laughs> and if you're only answering to God and you're the one who says what God says, well, then that's it, like you're you're the one in charge. And like really, in the end, no one can tell you what to do because you're just doing what you think is right. And I, so I don't know. I'd be curious mm. to know what you think about that. Yeah, I had a hard time, I would say, with authority and not wanting mm-hmm. to necessarily be under authority or have anyone mm-hmm tell me what to do. So even in my one year in law, Very rebel. I made up, I made up my own rules. It's like, I went to court almost every day and I figured out how to win early. And mm-hmm. it was like, well, as long as I can win, I can do what I want. So I bought yes. the firm culture and went home at four o'clock. Cause the lawyers would stay till seven, eight, nine o'clock work every weekend. And I knew I was doing this just for a year before I went into seminary, did the bar ads and then went into seminary. And uh, I was newly married and wanted to prioritize my marriage. So I would sneak out with all of the support staff at 4.30. But as long as I won every case, what were, what were the lawyers going to say? So I made up my own rule. Right. And I'm done in a year. So fire me. Go right. ahead. But I'm making right. you too much money for you to fire me. What does okay, that Okay, wait. And Carrie, do I, remember, do I remember from a previous episode that you're a big fan of Thomas Merton? Or was it one of your guests who was a big fan uh, of Thomas Merton? One of my guests is, I, he is somebody I've oh. read a little bit and want to get into more of. But yeah, tell me about Thomas Merton. Morton. Merton. He Sorry, is a me. rebel, for sure. He's a rebel, is if he really? You, well. Oh, yeah. Go read his journals and you will say, <laughs> oh, this guy's a rebel. So it might be, since you're a rebel too, it might be particularly interesting for you to read like just how he thinks because- um, and you might say, hey, he's, uh, you know, he's this 
monk who's in this extraordinarily disciplined uh, area. You know, wh- why is he, was he a Cistercian? Um, I'm blanking I on I don't his know order. enough about him. I'm trying to remember yeah. who was that. Okay. Was that, uh, could have been Patrick Lencioni. Yeah, he was a yeah. Catholic. Yeah, yeah, he's a Roman Catholic monk, but I was trying to remember who the guest was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember who was talking about it, but um, I remember <laughs> that you were having a conversation about, yeah, he's best known probably for his spiritual memoir called Seven Story Mountain. But if for the Thomas Merton people out there, I would really highly recommend reading like the eight volumes of his journal, which like super, like super compelling page turning reading. Um, but he's just very interesting to me as an example of um, of someone who you might think would not be a rebel. But if you read his journal, it's like he's very, very much a rebel and how he brought that rebel spirit um, is, just, is really fascinating. You know, when you say church planters are rebels, it brings about sort of, oh, and then also, I don't like any rules. Well, when you look at all the church leaders who have failed and all the headlines, et cetera, it's like, yeah, accountability would have been a really good thing in a lot of those cases. And maybe following a couple of rules would, would have been a good idea. So I think I've, I've learned to be a lot more self-disciplined, a lot more deferential, but I think my nature is perhaps rebellious. Calvin would agree we're all rebels, but that's another story for another day. So anything else about rebels? Because is there that shadow side where, yeah, you could end up shipwrecking everything through a lack of, of discipline? Like where, where's the shadow side of being a rebel? Well, and you're exactly right. Each of the four tendencies has uh, has like strengths and weaknesses, and the strengths are the weaknesses. So you could say, well, mm. the power of the rebel is that, that when they know what they want, they're unstoppable. They have this vision. They have this authenticity. They have just this energy to drive towards what they want. Um, and, and, and depending on their values, so like some rebels are incredibly— um, civic minded or, you know, or, 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 you know, have the highest level values and they, and they're, it's their identity that matters to them. So are they that loving parent? Are they that responsible mm-hmm. partner? Are they that, 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 um, that, uh, that, that boss that they want to be? Um, and what is the vision that they're driving to? But then again, you're like, okay, but what's the downside of that is like, I don't want anybody else telling me what to do. And if you tell me what to do, I'm going to resist you. Even sometimes if it's something I was going to do already, <laughs> now that you've told me to do it, I don't want to do it. Um, and, you know, it can be hard for others. And like one, and like, if you, here's something that's interesting. Okay. If you're a rebel, tell me if you've experienced this. Usually when there's a pair, either in romance or like a founding team or like two people who often work together, if one person is a rebel, the other person is an obliger. That is by far the, mm. do you have a lot of obligers that you can think of in, around you? Because rebels often will find lots of obligers around them. I would say my wife is probably an upholder. She's extremely oh, internally disciplined and, you mm. know, generally doesn't buck the system, although she carves out her own path, but like not naturally a rule breaker. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I bet you. And again, this is a new framework to me. I'm going to have to do the assessment, but I think probably my long-term EA was, yes. and we worked so well together. She just had three kids mm-hmm. in the last five years. So, you know, she needed to just tap yeah. out and do some stuff at home, but it was probably an obliger. I have to see what Sarah mm-hmm. has to say about that. But yeah, this is, yeah, I can see that. Like eights from the Enneagram framework Eights work really mm-hmm. well together with twos. So if you're a helper, mm-hmm. right? Eights, right. eights, that's a very good relationship, uh, tends to mm-hmm. be. So I can definitely see that. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and also for the obliger, like obligers feel very much the weight of outer expectations. So they're very excited because the rebel's like, we don't have to do that. We can ignore them. Let's go off. Like, we don't have to do what they tell us. And the obliger's like, are really? Great. <laughs> that sounds good to me. So they, they, they really are very complimentary. But I have to say about obligers, they're the ones that team up the best with all three tendencies. They're, the, they're like the type O of tendencies. They're the ones that pair up the most easily with the other three. So quiz.gretchenrubin.com? Yeah. Or just that? Qu- just just, e- just Google quiz. Google quiz, yeah. Gretchen Rubin quiz and you'll find it. Get like three and a half million people have taken this quiz. You can get a little report. Yeah. So yeah. I want to, man, it feels like we could talk for hours about this stuff. Anything else on happiness? Because I want to talk about your new work on census. Mm. Well, the last thing I would say about happiness is like kind of the most important thing I discovered is we all have to do our own happiness project. Like, There's no right way. There's no one way. There's no one size fits all tool. And I think a lot of times when people get discouraged, um, they feel like, well, I'm trying to do something that everybody else feels like is really important for them. And it's not that it's not important for them. It's just that just because something is important to somebody else doesn't mean it's important to you or vice versa. I'm um, so like touching on like life in five senses. One of the things people just kept saying to me, oh, music's the greatest. I listen to music all the time. You have to listen to more music. And I was like, I'm not such a music person, you know? And for a while, I, I didn't want to admit that about myself. Then I'm like, you know what? People are different. And they have, di- mm. they bring, they have a different world that they're inhabiting. And so that's, very, I think for happiness, it can be kind of a relief to realize that we're not all going to come up with the same, the same values, the same interests, the same priorities, the same aims. Yeah. One of my uh, favorite titles in the book world, I haven't had him on the podcast, but I'd love to sometimes Dan Harris, 10% happier. Um, oh, he's a good pal of mine. He's the greatest guy. Oh yes. So is fun. he really? Oh, okay. Well, we, we got to connect. I'll, yeah, I'll do that. I thought that was such a great title. Yes. Because it was such a realistic title. It's like, everybody's promising, you know, this is the happiness pill. You're going to be amazingly yeah. thrilled. You'll never have a bad day. And he's like, hey, I'm shooting for 10% happier, right? Well, and to that point, so Dan, because he's a friend, one of the things I tried and couldn't do and didn't do anything for me was meditation. I'm like, didn't mm. work for me. It's a great tool. Didn't work for me. And Dan was like, Gretchen, you've got to try it again. You've got to try it again. And he gave me this whole pitch for it. And I'm like, okay, Dan, you're so persuasive. I'm going to try it again. Tried it for another five months. And I'm like, it doesn't work for me because it's a great tool, but no tool fits every hand. It's not a tool that works for me. And so, you know, meditation is something that works for a lot of people, but for some people, and and once I sort of came out with that effect, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, meditation doesn't work for me either. It's like, yeah. right, so, so try something else. There's a lot of ways to achieve our aims. And so I don't think that if something's not working, like that's okay, try a different way to achieve an aim rather than spinning your wheels and getting frustrated if something just, um, you know, doesn't work for you. It's like, okay, well, let's think of other ways to achieve that aim. Well, I spent 20 years as a pastor. Meditation doesn't work for me either. So there we go. I just there you I have go. lots of friends we'll who do it. And I'm like, yes. all right, I don't know. I don't get it. Maybe I'm just not that contemplative right? type. I know. I My know. brain is too active. Go. And I know you're supposed to bring it back and focus on this, but I just don't. I, um, so when you look no. at where you started, the, the Happiness Project a decade-ish ago, 
and where mm-hmm. you ended the year at and where you feel you are now. Is it 10% happier, 20% happier, 50% happier? Like when you, when you look at that, I'm just curious. Well, that's such an interesting question. And when I started the happiness project, a friend of ours who's like a data guy was like, you should have your husband like rate you on a one to 10 scale every morning and every night. And I'm like, okay, I'm just telling you that would not contribute to my happiness. How to end the marriage, chapter one. Right, yeah, no kidding. And also when like, I have to like scale myself like that, I'm like, I'm both happy. I don't know, I just, that that melts my brain. So I would say this, when I'm just sitting on the subway, staring off into space, or I'm like falling asleep at night, I'm still the same person. You know, when I started this, I scored Mm. seven on the one to 10 scale, kind of a seven by nature. And so that didn't change. My kind of fundamental nature didn't change. But what has changed is my experience of my life. Like I have so Mm. much more fun and love and tenderness and enthusiasm. And I have so much less like guilt and anger and resentment and boredom and I have now, when I'm thinking about whether I want to do something, I really I really think about, is this something that's going to make me happier? Like, oh, it's going to be a big pain to go to my college reunion. Do I want to spend the money and the time and the energy to like fuss with it? And I'm like, yes, because if we know anything, we know that mm. relationships make people happier and long-term relationships are irreplaceable. And if I go, I'll probably be really, really happy that I went. So even though I don't feel like working on it right now, it's definitely something that I should do. So that's just one small example. So I really do think it's made my life much happier, but it without really sort of changing my under uh, my fundamental character, um, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, that's really fair. And uh, thanks for the honest assessment too. There's way too many quote influencers out there who promise these magic pills that really don't mm-hmm. lead anywhere. Mm-hmm. I love the honest. And I, I sense that in your writing. I sense that in your approach to things that you're just given the straight goods, which is incredible. So uh, let's talk about Life in Five Senses, a delightful mm-hmm. book. It made me very emotional. Oh. I know not everybody's read oh. it. It wasn't out yet when we did this recording, but I found myself like tearing up at different points oh, in, a, in a good way. That's like so happy lovely tears. to hear. Oh, good. Like profound. Like, wow, this is this is such a gift we have this life and you're processing it very similar to the happiness experience or experiment a year long where you're going to go through the Mm -hmm. five senses. So just remind us what the five senses are. And maybe that's a good starting point Mm because I'm not sure we could all pass that kindergarten test anymore. Right. Well, you know, and and now researchers would say, no, we have 33 senses, 35 senses. So there are all (laughs) these, there, there are more subtle senses running in the background But I really wanted to focus on what you would call the Aristotelian senses or the kindergarten senses, which are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, Um, because there's kind of a glamour to those five. We're very we're we're much more aware of them. And we're and like in our everyday cultural life, we're much more attuned to them, some more than others. Um, but, uh, more than, you know, the ones that are going on in kind of inside the body that we really are usually only aware of if something goes wrong. So you open the book with a quote I've never heard before Mm. that I almost think I ought to frame, but it's an Andy Warhol quote, if I got that right. And yeah, yeah, he says, and quote, nobody looks at anything. It's too hard. And I'm like, oh. I'm so happy that you love that that quotation as much as I do. Right? Such a great quote. Doesn't that just pierce you to the heart? It's too hard. Absolutely. It's too hard. Let's unpack that. What does that mean to you? Wow, Gretchen, that was a great quote. 
To me, it means that it just, it takes just so much energy and focus to see what's happening right in front of me, to be attentive, to like not let myself drift into the fog of preoccupation, the fog of my own thoughts, my distractions, my petty worries, you know, overlooking what's familiar because I just can't be bothered to really to really see it and hear it and smell it and taste it and touch it. Um, you know, too often it was like I would drink a cup of coffee and like, oh, where did that go? Did I did I just have a cup of coffee? I don't even remember. Yeah. I would be like kind of terrify myself because I would be like, oh, my gosh, I've been driving a car. Did I even look at the road? I don't remember that. Um, or, you know, all of a sudden my daughters look two inches taller. I'm like, wait, have I not been paying attention all this time? Um, so just this feeling of um, it's too hard. But I need to make the effort and really try to make that direct contact with the world and appreciate it um, because it's all too fleeting. Or to even see as a pastor for 20 years to actually see another human being. You know, I would yes. find between services or after services could be the worst time because someone come up, they start giving you the two minute version of their life story. You're thinking about how did the last service go? How much time yes, do I have left? Right. You're not really yes. listening. Like, can I just be in the moment and actually pay attention to a yes. human being who is spilling their yes. guts? And sometimes the answer is I'm not. Like, so you're talking about that. Nobody looks at anything. It's too hard. I think I am framing that. No, it's, it's, very, it's very hard to do with that kind of intensity. And one thing that I've learned is to say to people, I'm sorry, I just wandered off in my mind. Could you repeat that? And because that's the, I, when I started doing that, I felt like um, it was very dismissive and people would really take offense to the fact that my mind had wandered. But it turns out that everybody, everybody's done it. Everybody knows what you're talking about. And they appreciate that you're like, hey, I don't want to lose your thread here. Um, or you can say to somebody like, I can't really, I can't really pay attention to you right now. Though. And I say that to my, my children sometimes is like, I can't really pay attention to you right now because I have to deal with this other thing. Can we talk about this later so I can really give you my full attention? Because it is, it's so draining um, to really hear, to really listen, to really look, to really be present. Um, yeah. So I think it's something. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, part of what I did in this book was just to like, just delight in my five senses and let them roll over me just, just and enjoy them and not try to be disciplined and try to focus, but just be like, this is recess time. I'm just going to like, let it just like be awake to it um, in a, in a playful, like recess way. Um, so, you know, again, people would often say, oh, is this a kind of meditate five senses meditation? I'm like, no, this is the opposite of a meditation. Cause I'm just like, I'm just sniffing the air and enjoying it. I'm not trying to discipline my mind. I just want to just be more open to things in a kind of a freewheeling way, um, in a playful way. Not that there's anything wrong with doing it in a focused way, but you know, it sounds like for you and me, maybe that's not the way we want to go. And there's this other way to do it. You know, and I think that's what made me wistful or emotional in reading the book. It's like, this life has got a lot of challenges, but it's also very good and it's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. So my wife mm -hmm. and I have been in Southern California. I was taking a walk. I mean, the ocean is just off to my right and we do a beach walk every day. And I went out just for a walk by myself on the weekend and, you know, I'm having this adult conversation in my head about, oh, I don't yeah. really want the waves to get my sandals wet because then, you know, I'm going to have sand on my shoes. Then I got to wash them off. Yeah. And then I'm like, yeah. Stop it. Like, just take your sandals off. Yeah. Go get your feet wet. Yeah. 
Don't worry about yeah. it. You're going to wash it off. It's going to take 10 yeah. seconds. But like as adults, we forget. And yeah. the five yeah. senses are sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch that you profile yeah. in the book. Was any of them in particular more impactful than others? Or is that an unfair question? Is it like asking you to pick between your kids, which you can't do, no oh. parent can do? <laughs> well, what, yeah. Well, one thing that I realized is that a lot of us have like uh, like senses that we just sort of automatically appreciate more. And then some of us have yeah. ones that we sort of neglect. And what's interesting, and so I think one of the things I found is that your neglected senses is kind of the low-hanging fruit because that's something where you can really, like you haven't been tapping into it as much. And so there's a lot to do there. So I think two of mine, well, all the senses are popular, but two of my neglected ones are very popular. One is uh, tasting and one is hearing. Um, and so part of it was for me figuring out ways uh, that were consistent with my own nature and that appealed to me um, to to get more enjoyment out of taste, find my own way. Because, um, like, I don't really like going to fancy restaurants and trying new foods or cooking or spending a lot of time in farmer's markets. But there were other things that I could find that I did find that would help me connect with kind of the joyfulness of uh, the sense of taste and appreciation for it. And also it's, you know, it's superpower of evoking memories, which all the senses are so good at evoking memories. And same thing with hearing. I... Everybody loves music. It's like universal ancient human culture. Nobody really knows why, but it's there. Um, and I'm like, okay, but I don't really love music. But then a friend of mine said, I think you do love music. You just love it in your own way. And so that was a huge moment of self-knowledge for me, which I was like, I do love music. I just love it in a way that it doesn't seem like it's the way most people love it. I like songs. Like I'll like a song. Mm. But then I don't want to go listen to all the music by that artist or all the music in that genre. And I don't want to spend time listening to new music. I just like the songs I like and I'll listen to them over and over. And I'll have a really powerful emotional response to them. But just song by song. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly fine way to, to love music. And once I admitted that to myself, I was able to take much more uh, uh, delight in my appreciation for music because I wasn't kind of feeling bad about the fact that my way was different from the way that it seems to me most other people um, like to appreciate music. Well, it's sort of the be Gretchen rule, right? Like just be, be you. Be Gretchen. be Gretchen. Yeah. Yeah. Feel, sub feel free to substitute your own name, but yeah, be Gretchen. That's my first personal commandment. What did you learn about silence? <sighs> Oh my goodness, I love silence. Um, I think, and I think in an increasingly noisy world, uh, I think people are seeking out silence and it's very important to realize the value of silence if you need it. I did this funny thing where um, I packed off my family to go stay with my in-laws because I, I wanted to go on a silent, uh, like a silent retreat. Well, you and I don't like to meditate. It turns out yeah. most si silent retreats are silent meditation retreats. So I'm like, well, I don't want the meditation and then I also realized, like, if I went on a like a silent retreat, I'd be very distracted by kind of the adventure of it. Like that would be fun, but I didn't really want that. I just wanted the silence. And so I thought, well, I can have silence at home as long as there's nobody talking to me. So they went off for a weekend, and I stayed by myself. I didn't listen to a podcast, watch TV or a movie, or talk to anybody. I do live in New York City, so if I went outside, I would hear people talking, but they weren't talking to me, and just let let a silence fall. And it was so restorative. I, just even for a few days, it was just 
so helpful. I just felt like in what one thing that was surprising was like the noise in my head stayed just as loud. And I didn't even really notice the silence nearly as much as I thought I would. Like I didn't miss the fact that I wasn't listening to podcasts or TV shows or the radio or whatever. Like it, I didn't notice it nearly as much as I thought I would. Um, but there was just something about not having words coming from me or coming at me that I did find very, very deeply restorative. I used to hate silence and something I've learned over the last decade, well, 15 years really since the burnout is I crave it now. But mm. tying this back to energy, I don't know whether you've experienced this or not. Sometimes at the end of the day, like I'm a morning person, but by the time I get to 4 p.m., particularly if I've had a busy day, if I'm speaking at a conference or an event, I've often thought, oh, I just need to grab a nap and I'll sit down mm -hmm. and I'll be quiet, no stimulation, and within about 10 minutes, I can start to feel, it's almost like watching the battery meter on your phone go up from yes. like 20%. Yes. It'll be like 30, 40, 50, 60. Yeah. And after about 20 minutes of silence, half an hour of just sitting there quiet with no stimulation, yeah. without a nap, yeah. sometimes I'll feel fully yeah. charged. And I'm like, what is yeah. that? So there, I've noticed a, a, um, a connection between silence and energy. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Have you noticed that? You know, I hadn't put it together that way, but now that you say that, I really want to study that in myself. And you like when you're speaking, mm. it's interesting. There's kind of like the green room. There is kind of an understanding that you may need a period of silence to prepare. And I always thought about it was kind of getting psyched up, but maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe you need like to have that moment of recharging and silence either before or after. So that's fascinating. And I think that's, that's a great example of like studying our own energy patterns is so valuable because like you discovered this about yourself. So a person might've thought, oh, I need to have a bed and lie down. And if I don't take a nap, it doesn't work. It's like, well, maybe, maybe, it, maybe it's the nap and maybe it's just, it's just having this period of silence and you could have that, um, you know, maybe more easily to fit into your day if that's something that's going to restore your energy. Uh, there's just something, it's funny too, like I finally dawned on me, I was like, am I the first person to notice this brilliant insight? No, I wasn't, which is that <laughs> listen is just the word, the letters silent rearranged, um, which is obviously oh, extremely apt because another thing about silence is if you can stay silent when someone is talking to you, there's enormous value to that. Also hard. What did you learn about listening? Because leaders by nature love mm -hmm. to talk. And, you yes. know, trained as a lawyer, I love talking, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But as I said to you, when we were getting started, I've learned the secret to podcasting is let the guest talk 90% of the time, if not mm -hmm. more. And I am trying to be better at listening. So what did you discover? Well, I realized that I wasn't that good at it. Um, and I also discovered, I, I figured out um, some of my own personal challenges. One challenge that I have is that I will often, even before I realize it, like if I feel that someone's going to a vulnerable place in a conversation, I'll often just start to deflect it. Um, and it's and I've started to try to get better about that, to stay open to painful or vulnerable con conversations that people want to open. Um, and, and I've had things where I'm, I have to even go back to somebody and say, like, you know, I felt like you wanted to talk about something. And I, I moved off of that um, before we talked about it. Um, so do you, would you like to go back to that now? Um, and, and so that's something where I'm really trying to be in a conversation. And if I feel that that happened, I mean, it's, it's an honor that somebody is trying to say something to you, confide something that's probably painful um, to like, just, just 
stay, if I don't know what to say, that's fine. Just stay silent. Um, I realize that one of my ticks too is that if somebody has an issue or something like that, my thing is like, I mean, I love to read and I have a book for everything. And I'm always like, oh my goodness, you're getting a divorce. You should read this book. Or, oh, you're having trouble with your child. This is a book for you. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, back off. They haven't asked for a reading list. Like maybe later you could follow up with an email or like if they say to you, oh, do you have any, you know, um, but to just stay listening and to, and one, a thing that I find to be really helpful is assume the posture of listening, put down a book or a phone or a paper or whatever, turn your shoulders to face the person, look them in the eye and, 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 and nod and say, uh-huh. And like, and, 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 and signal that you're listening. Don't do the thing like, well, I'm doing X, Y, Z thing. Now, the one time when that's not true, I don't go into this in the book, but everybody who's got kids knows Sometimes it's better you're driving, you're doing dishes, you're doing something where it's it feels less intense. That's sometimes when they confide. And that's, again, like you have to be ready to listen when somebody's ready to talk. Don't say like, I got to run or let's talk about this later. When someone's ready to talk, you're ready to listen. Another thing that I found that's really helpful is if I am having a difficult conversation with somebody, like especially a family member, if uh, is to just like hold their hand or touch them in some way. It's hard to yell at somebody when they're hold when you're holding their hand, it's hard to be like sarcastic and snarky if your hand is on their back. And so I find that like that, you know, remember that you can you I can help mm. myself listen better and be a better, you know, engage in conversation better um, by having a physical connection to them. If it's appropriate, of course. This isn't this isn't something that will work in every circumstance, but it works it works in your family. So I particularly love the way you wrapped up life in five senses. You had a section just called more, which is mm -hmm. really, I think, a promise. What did you discover as you went through, again, a year where you were in different quadrants or whatever, different mm -hmm. periods, tapping into each of the five senses and really paying attention? What did you discover more of or experience more of? I mean, it was just, it was so much. I, this was one thing where I it was so much more effective than I thought it would be. I mean, so many things. So one is uh, more memories. Like the, we all know that the senses have the power to evoke memories, but I'm just one of these people, I don't have a good memory of my own past. Sort of haunts me. I'm always looking for ways to bring up memories or solidify memories and tapping. I did like a, a taste timeline. I wrote uh, with, and, you know, thinking about my life through my to taste. That was, you know, such a fun exercise, but all of the, um, all of the senses are so powerful in that way. Um, I got just more creativity. Uh, I sort of speculated that I thought that tapping into my five senses would spark my creativity. And I was just completely unprepared for how sparked I would get. I was just like creating like new writing projects and like like physical products and 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 just kind of all over the place, which was super fun, almost kind of too fun. Um, I had to figure out how to manage that. Um, one of the most important things it did was it really connected me to other people. Um, I really found that a great way to connect with people is by thinking about the senses. So one of them we just talked about listening. So that's a way about thinking about hearing and how to connect with people. Um, I thought about um, my, with my mother-in-law, we went on a, like a taste 
uh, a taste adventure where we visited all these places in New York City where we could have the taste that she ate as a child. So, And my daughters came with us. So it was a whole way to connect with my mother-in-law in this super kind of fun, playful way that actually was quite deep and that my daughters mm. really felt like it brought them a lot closer to their grandmother um, as well. And so that was, that, and, they, and it was just, and it was fun, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's just more fun. And, you know, we've been talking about energy. There's so much energy that we can draw from the five senses by just really allowing them to, to come in and, and enliven um, our lives. And even, you know, something like tapping into your five senses for energy. I mean, if you, one of the quickest, easiest ways to give yourself an energy boost is to listen to a favorite upbeat song. Like everybody knows that works. But even like if there's a smell that you love, like a bottle of vanilla or clean towels, take a deep whiff of a great smell. That gives you a flood of energy. Um, touching something like I, I've, one thing I realize I'm much more sensitive to touch than I thought, like velvet or tinfoil or peeling hard boiled mm. eggs. Like there's just somebody was telling me how she loves to wash dishes um, because she just loves the feeling of like dishes being washed. I'm like, that's great. That's a super handy little uh, sensory treat. But I have to say, ever since she told me that, I'm like, you know what? There is something kind of enjoyable about doing dishes when you think of it as like a sensory experience. Um, and that so that can be a way to give yourself that little energy boost uh, because we were talking about managing energy. So it turned out the tuning into my five senses just offered me so much more than I had even expected when I started. Well, and as you say, senses are so mnemonic. I mean, ivory dish soap to this day, not the clear yes. kind, but the like murky white kind that's oh, been around yeah. forever. Yeah. One whiff of that, I'm in my grandmother's kitchen and I'm 10 years oh. old. Like it's crazy yes. how yes. that just transports me back decades. She died 20 years ago, but you know, yes. it's just like incredible. Or the smell of an iron on linen, again, mm -hmm. reminds me of my grandmother because she was always ironing, always ironing. <laughs> it was like, right. you know, just little weird things. And every once in a while you catch a whiff and you're like, oh yeah, that's my childhood. Well, an exercise, because we talked about this on the Happier podcast, something that really resonated with people, it sounds like it might appeal to you, is to do a five senses portrait. So this is when you take your five senses mm. and for each sense, you pick five things. So like if you were going to do a five senses portrait of your grandmother, well, you've said like the smell of the dishwashing liquid and the smell mm. I mean, and the smell of the iron on linen. But there's probably tastes that you associate with your grandmother and sights that you associate with oh, your grandmother yeah. and sounds. And somebody, um, I did this of my husband as an exercise. It was so fun. And then somebody said, oh, I'm going to do it of my grandparent who just died. To, partly to hold on to memories and then also because um, my children are too young to have a memory of this family member. And so this is a way to really make this person concrete and really to convey, you know, just like what it was like to be with them. And then, you know, you could do a five senses portrait of a place, you know, like maybe you love to go to Maine mm. every summer. It's like, what are the, what are the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch that you associate with a place? And it's, it's kind of creative and, and it brings back all these memories. But then like what I like about it is like the actual writing it down is pretty easy. You know, it's not like, oh, now you have to draw, you know, you have to like envision your future and draw something. I'm like, I can't draw. But this is, this is you write a quick list and it's so fun. It makes a great gift, um, you know, because it makes people feel really observed. Like they're like, you're really paying attention mm. to me. You're like, you get it. Um, so it's, that's a very fun exercise if you're trying to think about um, how to tap into your five senses in that way. 
So you've mentioned podcasting uh, a few times and mm. congratulations, over 200 million downloads on the podcast. Mm -hmm. yeah. It seems to me, well, I'd love to know, what are you learning by podcasting? So, I mean, that's a lot of downloads. You're in the mm -hmm. stratosphere in the podcast universe. Uh, mm -hmm. What is podcasting teaching you? Well, one of the things about our podcast is we hear from listeners all the time because we'll we'll talk about ideas and then people will respond with, like sometimes we'll specifically say like, we want answers to this or like, what do people do? Um, or people will say like with the five senses portrait, I talked about what I did and then people would, would email and be like, well, this was my twist or this is how it worked for me. So we get a ton of engagement from listeners. And so that's been a huge education because there's so many insights and observations and resources. I have to say with the four tendencies, like I learned so much because so many people would respond from their own, um, like for instance, we just, somebody wrote in and they're like, I, my husband is a questioner and he just, I'm overwhelmed by his questions. Like, how can I get him to like, ask me fewer questions essentially? And I was like, okay, questioners, let's hear it. Or people, you know, people who are dealing with questioners, what do you do? And so, so when I was developing something like this personality framework that I was just making up, I felt like I saw it in the world, but I was trying to understand it. I just got so much, so many people responding that it just enriched my understanding. It's like the world is my research uh, assistant. Um, so that's part of what I learned. Um, and then also I learned like what resonates with people because sometimes, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, where you talk about something, you think it's a really big, interesting idea and nobody responds to it. And then sometimes you'll like throw out an offhand comment and people are like going wild. And it's just interesting because that's how you hear like, you know, what, what is of interest to people. And, um, and that's extremely valuable because it's, it teaches you, um, just like how to communicate more effectively and about things that are of mo the most value. Well, you also seem to have a decent entrepreneurial or business acumen to you as well. I mean, you have pivoted a few times in your career, but a lot mm -hmm. of people would be like, okay, I'm an author. I'm going to write mm -hmm. books. Mm -hmm. But you branched into podcasting. You've got quizzes, the whole deal. Mm -hmm. How is that a natural thing? Is that something you've got coaching in, taking coaching in? What, what, is, what is the entrepreneurial side of Gretchen? You know, I always just really want to connect with people who are interested in the same things that I'm interested in. So it's for me, it's all about communicating with an audience and also having a direct connection to an audience. But I'm also kind of enchanted with formats. So like I have all, so I wrote mm. a book about habit formation better than before. I have this four tendencies framework that's all very relevant to habit formation. So all this material and then and somebody said, you know, this would be great for an app. What about having a habit tracking app? Then all of your material would work. And I'm like, that would be so exciting. Like, I would love to communicate these ideas through an app. So now I have the Happier app. And so it's, it's ideas that I've already kind of worked through, but communicated in a different way. Same thing with podcasting. There's a way you can communicate, communicate in a podcast that you can't communicate in a book. To me, my heart is in writing, in book writing. That's always the way I prefer um, and there's things you can do in a book that you can't do anywhere else, but there's things you can do in a weekly newsletter that you can't do anywhere else. So I am sort of, and I, you know, I've always been interested in different structures. Like if you look at the Churchill book, you'll see it's like written all these different structures. I've always been interested in how you can change the structure of communication in order to like help people like to communicate, to really like make 
like make a point or to help people? Like why do, why and when do people understand something? I mean, people now are often like, tell a story. But I'm like, what do you mean when you say that? Because Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. yes and maybe no. And maybe what you think is a story is actually just a description of something that happened, which isn't the same thing as a story. Um, and, and so I, and, and so it has sort of led me into these entrepreneurial roots because there's all these new tools. And every time a new tool comes, I'm like, Ooh, maybe I should use this new tool. Like maybe <laughs> this is some cool new thing. Um, which sometimes I've kind of, I have definitely tried some things that failed because I tried a tool that ended up not working or, um, being too cumbersome or not interesting to anybody. I've had all those things happen. Um, so I find it very exciting or like now I have journals because I'm like, some people really want a journal. I have all these know yourself better questions. People feel like you should make a journal. And I'm like, I should make a journal. That would be really fun. And, um, so <laughs> I am very interested in, and and how do you, how can you help? How can you help communicate ideas, but through, through changing the, the means of communication? What fuels your curiosity and how do you keep it so sharp decades into your leadership? For me, it's all comes down to reading. Like I just love to read. It's my treehouse. It's my cubicle. And I, I like take a huge amount of notes when I'm reading. Um, so that's really like, that's what, if I start to be curious about something, that's like what I follow for as long as it takes me. And it's also what feeds my curiosity because a lot of times um, I'll read something that gets me interested. My, my favorite thing is like to read a book. Like this is how I found, how I found. So St. Therese of Lisieux is my spiritual teacher. Um, and I found her, I was reading Thomas Merton because I read somewhere, oh, Thomas Merton, Seven Story Mountain is like very like influential memoir. I was like, then I will read it. And then he mentioned St. Therese. I'm like, I'll read her. And, you know, so I like following from one to the next to the next. And often that's how I will, you know, be led into unfamiliar territory. Um, Because it's hard sometimes to read outside your own taste, um, which is definitely something Mm -hmm. that I try to do. Um, And um, so that's what for me, that's what for me is the most, always the most fertile source of ideas and, 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 uh, sharpens my curiosity is just, just by reading. Wow. Well, Gretchen, anything else we've covered a lot. Is there anything else you want to share or say to leaders? I think for leaders and, and you talk about this all the time is that you have to know yourself, um, in order to lead others well. Um, and you think, well, of course I know myself. I just hang out with myself all day long. Like, how hard can that be? But it's very hard to know ourselves. It's hard to look in the mirror. Um, I sometimes think it's easier to ask yourself indirect questions like, whom do I envy? Or what did I do for fun when I was 10 years old? Questions like that. Um, but I think that when we lack self-knowledge, um, it's very easy to for a lot of things to happen um, that we wish would not happen um, because we don't understand our own strengths, our own weaknesses, our own preference, our own interests, our own values. It's very easy to think like, well, I just have good values. And it's like, well, a lot of people have good values that have different values. There's lots of, there's lots of values. Um, and uh, so I think, I think that self-knowledge is, and then, and it's only by knowing ourselves that we can figure out how to create our own happiness project 
um, or figure out like, well, what's my neglected sense? How I can, how can I tap into my senses? So many things happen when we, when we know ourselves, but it's the great challenge of our lives, I think. Well, I don't know that you know the quote or not. Uh, it's from John Calvin, but he says, without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. Mm-hmm. But without knowledge of self, self there's is- no knowledge of God. Yes. Oh, Deep, so right? You it's can like, think about yeah. so many layers to that. Think about that all the time. And one now to add to my memory is nobody looks at anything. It's too hard. I hope, I hope that continues to challenge me into my 60s, 70s, 80s, and who, who, who knows where else that leads. But mm-hmm. Gretchen, your gift, thank you so much for this conversation. So where can people find all things Gretchen Rubin? these days? Oh, there's so many places. So my website, GretchenRubin.com, you can, is a great place to to find information about books. I've got a ton of articles. The quizzes are there um, and a lot of free resources. If you want to take the four tendencies quiz, again, you can go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com or you can, or you, it's on the site as well. Um, I have the podcast that we were just talking about called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. I have the Happier app, which is a, f- a free habit tracking app. If people want to try that, it's just called the Happier app and, you know, buy it in the app store. Um, and I'm all over social media uh, and my handle is Gretchen Rubin. And I really love to hear from from people about, you know, questions and comments and observations and resources that people... I. I spend a lot of time just reading the books that people recommend to me <laughs> that like, Gretchen, I think this sounds like the kind of book you'd like. I'm like, okay, I'll read it. Um, so I love, I love to hear from people. Um, I got a new, a weekly newsletter. If you love quotations, you and I love quotations. I have a, I have such uh-huh. a gigantic trove of, ha- of quotations. I was like, how do I use new tools to put my quotations into the world? So I have a moment of happiness newsletter where you can get like just a beautiful quotation, you know, from some towering master of writing. Um, every weekday. Um, and it's something about happiness or human nature. Um, so the moment of happiness newsletter. So I got, a, I got, a, I got, a, I got more stuff than anybody would ever want to explore, but it's all about happiness, good habits, the five senses, human nature. Well, it's been an absolutely delightful conversation. I so appreciate your work. I'm honored that you're also a listener and uh, I am uh, a new friend, Gretchen. Yes. Thank you so, so much for being oh, on the Oh, thank you so much. Today. It made me so happy to talk to you. Well, that was a delightful conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. Uh, If you haven't subscribed yet to this podcast, please do so. You can do it wherever you're listening right now. That way you'll never miss an episode. I'm going to tell you who's coming up in just a second. In the meantime, though, I want to thank you for checking out our sponsors. The founders of Leader, Matt Tresseter and Chris Heaslip, are the co-founders of Leader, and they have a brand new book, Management is Dead. You can get the latest on that book and sign up for bonuses at leader.com slash book. That's L-E-A-D-R dot com slash book. And as a reminder, don't forget to download Belay's latest resource, the Church Leadership Toolkit. In no time, you'll be back to doing only what you can do, shepherding your people. Text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y to 55123. That's C-A-R-E-Y to 55123. So coming up. What have we got? Well, we've got J.D. Greer, Vance Rausch, so glad to have him back, Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt-Miller. Who else have we got? We've got uh, Seth Godin coming back on the show. So excited for that. Chris Hodges and a whole lot more. And next episode, Mark Batterson returns. Another fascinating conversation. Here's an excerpt. Can you become unoffendable? You suggest it in the book. And if so, you know, how does that work? Like, 
you got to be able to absorb a lot. Yeah, it, it's it's one of my chief goals in life. And the only way is to have a really robust prayer life mm. that let's pray for the people we love the most and let's pray for the people we like the least. And <laughs> that then allows you to look at them eye to eye and the image of God in me greets the image of God in you. Um, it goes back to those two rules of life that everyone's fighting a battle I know nothing about. That gives me great grace for other people. It's that non-anxious curiosity like, whoo, you just blew up over something really, really small. So what in the world's happening? What happened in your past that caused that landmine to go off right now? And, uh, and I, I think it's that, that approach um, may our capacity for forgiveness be greater than our capacity for offense. And right now, people are too easily offended. And I, we won't deep dive this, Carrie, but part of the problem is a common enemy mentality that we demonize anybody who's not part of our in-group. And we've got to have a common humanity mindset that uh, all of us made in the image of God. So that's next time on the podcast. Hey, I would love to get you in on a special live recording of the podcast happening in Atlanta, Georgia on the morning of April 26th. I'm very, very excited for this. You've still got time to get there, particularly if you're in the Atlanta area. Uh, what you can do is just go to cnlp.live at cnlp.live. Registration is very limited. Seats are limited and registration is required. So if you're interested, it's absolutely free to you, but you get to experience a live in-person interview. I'll be talking to Horst Schultze, the founder of Ritz-Carlton and its former COO. We're going to talk about all things hospitality, leadership. He's absolutely brilliant. You don't want to miss it. April 26th, to register live, come see me. Let's hang out. Let's get to know each other. CNLP.live or click the link in the description of this episode. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. 